Well, if you would, turn to Exodus 4. And if you had a chance to read this before today, you know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. Uh, a couple of you came up uh, before we started and said, okay, that was a bizarre text. Now, why are we devoting some time to this sucker? Uh, hopefully, by the time we're done, you're going to see uh, a couple, I think, great truths. But if you would, turn to Exodus 4. If you've just joined us, it's good to have you. We've been work, walking through the life of Moses. We're going to continue that in the spring. Uh, uh, hard to believe this is week five. We're already halfway through the fall Bible study. I was just thinking about that this morning. In Exodus chapter 3 and 4, we have the burning bush incident, right? And Moses has five objections. By the, the last objection is, I'm just not going. <laughs> he says, I'm not doing it. And, and right before that fifth objection, God gives three signs. What were they? Do you remember? To Moses, he says, here's the three signs you can take with you. To, a snake. So the rod turns into a snake. We, we talked about that, his, the, the skin disease, leprosy of some sort. And then the third is the blood, the Nile turning to blood, which is the first of the plagues. All right, that's the only one that wasn't demonstrated right there on the spot to Moses. So you have this great event. God says, you're going, uh, four times you're going, and Aaron will go with you now. Uh, fine, you want him, you can have him. Uh, it's really a concession to Moses. And, but he's going, right? Moses is on his way. Boom. Yay for Moses. Look at chapter 4, verse, we're going to start in verse 18. So Moses went back to his father-in-law, Jethro, and said to him, let me go. So that, remember, whose sheep is Moses attending on the mountain? It was Jethro's sheep. They're not his, which is intriguing. And there's a whole host of things we could comment about that. But let's move on. It says, let me go so that I may return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they're still alive. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt. Now watch what the Lord tells Moses. Because all men who are seeking your life are dead. Who ultimately was seeking his life? Pharaoh, right? The guy's croaked. But most the third. It's now I'm hooked up the second is reigning, most likely. Moses took his wife and his sons, plural. Don't miss that. Uh, Jesus said every jot and tittle is important in, this, in the scriptures. Uh, every jot is even the strokes of letters, the tittles are extensions of letters. Everything is significant. And this is plural, don't miss it. And put them on a donkey and headed back to the land of Egypt. Moses took the rod of God, you know that sucker, i.e. cobra, in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the wonders I've put under your control. Again, this is not the same Pharaoh that he fled from 40 years ago, but I will harden his heart. Wow. Not the Pharaoh hardening his heart. God says, I will harden his heart. And he will not let the people go. You must say to Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But since you have refused to let him go, 
I will surely kill your son, your firstborn. Hosea 11, God says of Israel, Israel is my son. And Pharaoh, you have touched my son. I'm going to take out your son, your firstborn. Interesting, isn't it? Well, let's look at this text and then we'll continue in this passage. But as we look at this, let's see if I can get this sucker to work today. Uh, oh, Dan Wallace event. One more, one more plug. Uh, we only have about 20 seats left if you're interested in going. Uh, Dan Wallace, we've got brochures on that, October the 28th, and I've said enough about that, so we'll move along. So, uh, Moses' interaction with Jethro. Did you catch this? Look at this again in, in verse 18. What's the problem with what he says to Jethro? Or is there a problem? It's not true. First of all, he does not relate what happened on Mount Sinai. There is not a word about a burning bush or a rod turning to a serpent or his hand turning to leprosy. Nothing is brought up. And then when he does mention why he's got to go to Egypt, it's a half-truth. Look what he says. So to see if my relatives in Egypt are alive. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you only need to go, go back to verse, um, well, earlier in chapter 4, uh, verse 14. What about your brother Aaron? He knows his brethren are alive. And if, if, if it's, let's be a little generous with Moses and say, well, he's referring to other distant relatives and the Israelites as a whole. Well, he's going to be delivering them. So we know they're alive. And, and that's not quite true, is it? Why? I've got the question there in your notes. Why does Moses lie to his father-in-law? Why do you think? The text doesn't tell us, so there's no... I'm sorry? He owes his father-in-law a lot, so he gets to That's all Well, I would think his father-in-law would be ecstatic that his son is gonna, his son-in-law is going to be the next leader of the Israelites. I know I'm just playing devil's advocate. He was still doubting. Doubting who? God. <laughs> this is why you're the doctor. Oh, so I'm, I, I, I would agree with you. I think that's a lot of it. I mean, I think there's some other things going on here, but doubting God? Are we sure this really is going to transpire? I think there's a lot of validity to that. Again, the text doesn't tell us. We're reading in between the lines. <laughs> okay, that's an interesting twist. I like that. And yeah, Terry. How do you explain from one person to another what he's been through? Okay. How do you do that? How do you tell somebody that you stuck your hand in and got leprosy? How do you tell somebody that you have a staff now that turns into a snake? What part of that would they believe? So he's concerned about how Jethro would receive it. Yeah, it'd be much easier to tell him that he just needs to go back to his people than it would be to. Yeah. Paul, you had your hand up. Three things. Number one, I think he's seeking a blessing from Jethro. Number two, he's a hired hand working for Jethro. And so as an employee, he tends to request that. And he's taken away Jethro's daughter and grandchildren at the same time, too, on an expedition that has a lot of question marks to it. Okay. Paul just gave us three. Here you go. He's our walking theologian here. Three points. Now all we need is a poem and we got it. But the three points, uh, he's asking a blessing from Jethro, Moses is. Secondly, uh, Moses has taken the family. 
right? He's taking his Jethro's grandkids. You got any grandparents in the room? My colleague says, if I knew grandkids were so great, I'd have them first, right? Uh, and then third, what did you say with the third one? It was good. <laughs> Not enough coffee this morning. Yeah, hired hand. He's, yeah. so I've heard some commentators state, remember, Jethro has seven girls. Uh, this is his only son-in-law. But again, we don't know if the other girls have married at this point. So, uh, <clears throat> this is his first practice for let my people go. <laughs> <laughs> it may be his first practice for let my people go. I love it. Thanks, Lou. Well, I'll tell you this. <clears throat> the bottom line, Moses is concerned more about what people think than what God thinks. Because all those excuses, Paul, you just gave, or Terry, yeah, there's, or, or Steve, there's some legitimacy in all of that. Um, <clears throat> and I think doubting God is, is an element here as well. All of this, obviously, are coming into play, right? Uh, what are you going to tell Jethro? Well, I, I, I've been told to go to, to Egypt, and I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. Right? Who, who's going to believe that, Right. And so there's, there's a host of things that are, are tied in there. Now, <clears throat> the reference to Pharaoh, this, by the way, is Amenhotep II. Uh, it was a time when uh, it was realism and art in Egypt, so it's a good impression of what he looked like. Uh, I have a bust of Amenhotep II in my office at home, and my wife has threatened to throw it in the trash. And she goes, it's just so weird having some idol-looking thing in your room, but... Uh, it, yeah, it's a reminder that God uh, can move and He's not subject to people, right? Uh, so I try to spiritualize it. Uh, anyway, uh, three things that we see in the text. First of all, the death of Pharaoh indicates the beginning of deliverance. Uh, Riken brings this out, and I think that's true. Uh, the news that those who sought you have died is an indication, ah, we're, we're on the threshold of something very exciting. Right? God has already eliminated this generation, and we're now coming to the next phase. And it's interesting in verse 20, you know, Moses left or fled, fled Egypt empty-handed. Now he comes back with a wife, two sons, though they're not going to go with him, which we'll see in a minute. But far more significant, the presence of God, and that is a rod. It's not Moses' rod. It's not Aaron's rod. Whose rod is it? The text says... God. It's just a stick of wood, right? It's a dead piece of wood, and yet it's a symbol of all that God's going to do. And that rod, as we know, uh, you can rehearse on how it's used in the Exodus and in the wilderness, etc. The second thing here that we see is that God tells Moses those signs and wonders, the foretaste that you had up on the mount, ha, that's just the beginning of the things that I'm going to display in my power before the Egyptians, right? And you know the plagues. We don't have to go through them. Um, and, and so he says, all of this I'm going to unleash upon the Egyptians. They're going to see this. In fact, he states that those signs and wonders are, are going to what is hardens the Pharaoh's heart. Twenty times in the book of Exodus, we're told Pharaoh's heart is hardened. What's interesting, sometimes the Hebrew, it's passive. He's hardening his own heart. And other times it's God's. God is doing the hardening. I think about Jesus when he performed the, the, the signs as well, the miracles, remember? He said some of them, it's to, to, to help 
individuals believe. For others, it's to darken their eyes so they will not believe. And you have this tension, don't you, of, of, of free will and predestination and all that goes into play here. But ultimately, the hardening is because Pharaoh hasn't responded well already. And God says, fine. It reminds me of Romans 1. You know what? If you want sin, fine, have at it. The worst thing that could possibly happen is God to say, all right, fine, I'll take the shackles off. Enjoy. Because you will reap the consequences. That's the whole point, right? So Pharaoh, you want to harden your heart? Fine, let me continue to assist you in this. And in, in the bottom of your notes, it says, in the dispute, look at this quote, it's so powerful. In the dispute about the question to whom, whom Israel belongs and who is her legitimate ruler, Pharaoh or Yahweh. I mean, you got this cosmic tension going on, don't you? The Pharaoh saying, uh, in the previous Pharaohs, no, we're in charge of Israel. There are slaves and we're going to minimize their, their multiplication, <laughs> And God says, no, I've told them they're going to multiply. They're my people, and they are, they're responsible to me, not to you, Pharaoh. And so you've got this tension going on. Pharaoh wants to sit on God's throne, and God says, absolutely not. You may sit on Ra's throne. You're not sitting on my throne. And so Yahweh at last will show that he has intimate emotional ties with Israel. Pharaoh had better know that to Yahweh, Israel is not just his own people. They are dear to him. And Pharaoh is going to be hit at his most sensitive spot, the spot where he has touched Yahweh himself in the love for his firstborn. Isn't that powerful? This, this whole scene. And he's saying, Pharaoh, fine. You want at it? This is what's going to happen. You know what's intriguing to me? And it's earlier on the previous page, but Moses never objects to this revelation. <laughs> he objected five times on Mount Sinai, but he doesn't object to once now. Yeah, go get him. <laughs> Can't you hear Moses? I love it. Take him out. I think this is great. He doesn't object here. Kind of reminds you a little of Jonah with Nineveh. Oh, come on, Lord. You can take him out. Do it. Moses does not object. Questions on this first part? Pretty straightforward, right? It's the next few verses that we're going to pull out our hair. All right, here we go. You ready? <laughs> The next portion states, and unfortunately, the Hebrew is a little unclear, and so your English translations, I don't care what version you have, the good old King James, which was good enough for the Apostle Paul, or, or whoever, whichever version you have, is, is going to have some interpretive issues going on here, all right? Let's, let's unpack it. It says, now on the way, this is Moses. The deliverer, he's been told by God, hey, you're going to take out Pharaoh. This is how it's going to work. This is wonderful. On the way that night, the Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. Right? I mean, this should stop you dead in your tracks. What? But Zipporah, who's Zipporah? His wife took a flint knife and cut off the foreskin. Yes, this is in the text. Here we go. Of her son and touched it to Moses' feet which could be genitals, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. <laughs> uh, I remember at uh, Dallas Seminary where I was working on masters, Ron Allen, one of the professors, had a three, 
Chapel series. He preached from this text. <laughs> he picked this. He said, all scripture is God-breathed and there's great value. And I've picked some very obscure text for our chapel messages. And he, he preached on this. And I still remember it. It was very powerful. And I, I hope to do half the justice that he did to the text this morning. Uh, it is a very difficult passage. In fact, there are eight questions, at least eight, that arise, and I've got them in your notes, and I, I, we have to read them, okay? So forgive me for insulting your intelligence, but on page two, number one, whom does God seek to put to death? The text is unclear. It says him. Is that Moses or one of the sons? And if one of the sons, which son? Right? We know of at least two, Eleazar, who's mentioned later in Exodus, and Jershom, who we've already seen in the text. That's the first one, Jershom. Secondly, if it's Moses, why would God want to kill the man whom he just appointed as deliverer? Is he a schizo? Oh, come on. You just called the guy. You went to great lengths to call him, and now you want to kill him? Third, what has transpired that God would seek to kill Moses or even one of his sons? Right? I mean, one minute God is saying, yay, go get Egypt. Next minute he's after Moses or one of his family members. How does Zipporah know what needs to be done? She's not an Israelite. She's a Midianite. How does she know that circumcision is what is needed? How does she know to circumcise? Let me just answer that real quickly. Uh, circumcision was common among Semitic people. Even the Egyptians circumcised. Right? Uh, they didn't circumcise fully as the Israelites. So the Israelites required a further process. But anyway, we won't, we won't go there. Anyway, I got it, right? <clears throat> oh, this is so good. And why does this hinder the Lord from taking a life? It's clear the circumcision is what pulls God's wrath back. All right? Whose feet does Sephora touch? And for that matter, what is feet? Because as I just told you, it's often translated as genitals. It could even be seen as another part of the male anatomy. All right, so what does that mean? And what does the phrase bridegroom of blood mean? How do you take that? And what is the reason for this passage <laughs> overall? Why do we even include it? Right? Aren't you glad you came this morning? <laughs> I told you. This is great. All right, this is free today. You gotta love it. Here we go. I believe this text is so powerful and so significant for us as men living in 2016. I can't think of a better text. And you go, what? Hold on to your bippers. Here we go. All right. Yahweh's encounter with Moses uh, here is similar to the angel of the Lord's encounter. And I have this there in your notes with Jacob in Genesis 32. <clears throat> Remember the scene with Jacob? What happens there? The angel of the Lord wrestles with Jacob. In fact, what happens afterwards? What happens to Jacob? Yeah, yeah, he has trouble walking after that. Long-term reminder, you just wrestled with God. What's interesting here, the angel of the Lord, we talked about this briefly a couple weeks ago, uh, is distinct from God, it would appear in the Old Testament, but is, is seen as God. The angel of the Lord will see, receive the same accolades that God will receive, and he does not stop it. Many scholars believe the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. And I think that's right. I really do. And what's interesting here is 
the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as well as very, very early rabbinic writings, the Targum, Onkelos, for instance, argues that this is the angel of the Lord here as well, that Moses is, is literally in the text, the angel of the Lord or God, here in the Hebrew text, it's God, has a death grip on Moses. He is a, I will argue the hymn, and that gets us to the first part, all right? Who does the Lord seek to kill? Uh, well, obviously, there's, there's only a couple options, right? There's either Moses or, or, or one of the sons. And uh, Paul was talking this morning, he was reading a commentator, and he said, hey, this guy argues it's Jershom, and, and, and that's viable. And usually the argument is Jershom is the oldest, the firstborn. We just came out of the passage about firstborn, right, in Egypt, and so that fits. The problem is the immediate reference here is Moses. Furthermore, if it's Jershom, why doesn't Moses perform the circumcision? I know there's some, but to me that doesn't make sense. It's Zipporah who does. I don't think Moses can do it because God has him in a death grip. And that's why Zipporah has to step up to the plate. Now, you can disagree. I wouldn't go to a firing squad on it. But I think what we have here is um, <coughs> Moses who God is about to take out. And you go, whoa, wait a minute. He's the one who God just picked him to deliver the people, right? How can you say that? Well, I think the issue clearly is circumcision, right? I thought you'd love that photo. Um, circumcision. Genesis chapter 17, what does the text tell us? Every Jewish male child must be circumcised. And the text goes on to say, if you do not perform that right, I will cut you, playing off of the word, I will cut you off from my people. God takes this right very seriously. Now, the Midianites would circumcise right before marriage, and it wasn't as extensive as this. And I know, that sounds awful, doesn't it? That ruins your honeymoon. But anyway, um, the both Egyptians and the uh, Israelites circumcised at eight, before eight days, right? Or on the eighth day as a child. Part There's some reasons for that. But um, Kyle and Dietlich in their commentary on the Pentateuch, it's there in your notes. And, and if I could, I'd like to read it because it's so powerful. It says, if Moses was to carry out the divine commission with success, in other words, if he's supposed to lead his people, he better lead his home. Right? I, I reminded of the qualifications of the deacons and the elders slash pastors or bishops in the pastoral epistles. If you can't manage your home, you shouldn't be a leader in the church. Now, when is a child no longer a child? I think 13, but, you know, we could talk about that. But Moses has not led spiritually in the home at all. It takes a Midianite woman to step up to the plate and say, you should have done this. In fact, I think Kyle and Dietlich are right. Moses had probably omitted circumcision simply from regard, with regard to his Midianite wife who disliked this operation. He had been guilty of a capital crime. Don't underestimate that. This was God's object lesson to his people a constant reminder that he has made a covenant with them. And Moses, you didn't fulfill it. 
which God could not pass over in case of one whom he had chosen to be his messenger to establish his covenant with Israel. God takes his object lessons seriously. Unfortunately, Moses doesn't learn this because later he strikes a rock twice and it forfeits the going into the promised land, right? When I say it, Moses, I mean it, God says. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. I think one of the hardest things as a parent is when you tell your child, you do this, there are, this is what's going to happen, right? And being consistent, I think it's the hardest word in parenting. Forgive me, I, that's what I think. David, you're an expert on child, children's ministry, but I think consistency is one of the hardest things. And, you know, it's a bummer. I said you, you couldn't play on your iPad to, uh, the next day because you did this, so no iPad. And then being consistent and holding the grounds on that, that's really hard. But God has no problem. He set the rules. This is it. Moses, you've blown it. And as a result, I'm taking you out. You're not doing this. You're not going to lead my people and, and trivialize the responsibilities I've given. Yeah. Question. That is the million-dollar question that I, I struggle with. Um, commentators try to give a variety of reasons. One is that now he's, he's fully responsible for his family, that he is separated from Jethro, and so now he really needs to lead. Um, and if he's going to take his family into the next level, he's got to have his family right. That's the, the strongest argument. It's not clean, I know. I know, it's a great question. Yeah, Kyle? Well, and, and it's intriguing because uh, God hasn't, God could take him out if he wanted to. So there, it's clear he's not. And the Hebrew allows that it seems that God is attempting to do so, or he's kind of in the process, which is intriguing. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, I, I think it's time, Moses, you're going to step up to the plate. Uh, unfortunately, he can't, and that's where Zipporah steps in, and then that's the question, who does she circumcise? We, we know it's a son. It's not Moses, um, because it says in the text, clearly, it's her son. Is it son number one, Jershom, or is it son number two that we meet later in Exodus? Is this the son? And again, uh, commentators disagree. <laughs> you do that. Uh, Jershom fits well with the firstborn, but I think it's the second. I, I realize that you say, well, uh, why do you argue that? I believe Moses circumcised his firstborn, and Zipporah was so appalled at this process. She said, I'm not, we're not doing that again, uh, you know, and I'm the wife, so we're not doing this again. And, and now she has no choice, but she's got to do the younger child. And this is there in your notes that Zipporah is probably, I would argue, she's certainly disgusted with the practice um, and, and I see the strengths for the firstborn, but um, I'm going to argue it's the, it's the younger son because here's why. Every male has to be circumcised. So if, if the firstborn wasn't circumcised, then she'd have to circumcise both sons, right? If Genesis 17 is so clear that it's nearly going to cost Moses his life, you better circumcise both child, children. And that would seem to suggest that Jershom is already circumcised. 
Still with me? <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, this is why I think the Septuagint and the rabbinic text and many commentators argue this is the angel of the Lord. In other words, it's God appearing in male form. Just as he wrestled with Jacob, just as uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham, just as, the, and that's why there's the reference to the feet. I think he's right there standing and he has got, Zipporah knows. She knows what's going on. It's interesting. She also knows how to circumcise, which would seem to Kate that she's already seen the practice before as well. Uh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then the, the, this becomes intriguing as well because there's two ways to render this. She could either say, I'm the, the bloody bride father to me, whoever she's referring to, or you're the, the bloody bridegroom. In other words, she could be referring to Moses. In that case, it's the, the groom, right? And in your notes, I mentioned this down at the, last, at the bottom of the page, and that's indicating that the act has saved Moses. I've saved, saved you because I did this. And look at my hands. They're bloody. You can only imagine. By the way, this is not an infant that she probably circumcised either. Think about that. This is 40 years he's been in the land. These are older children. Don't miss this. Can you imagine this scene? It would have been crazy, right? Secondly, um, is that Zipporah is addressing the Lord. If this is the case, she is disgusted with God and His practice, etc., and she's, she's saying, I, I am, He is the, the, the Father, the Bride Father to me, this grotesque operation that I am practicing. His feet, as I mentioned, could be seen as the genitals, um, and there are certainly grounds for that elsewhere in the, um, if you remember um, Saul relieving himself and he covered his feet, <laughs> uncovered his feet, okay, uh, that's not his toe-toes. Um, however, I'm going to argue here it's literally feet, but you can disagree with me. Uh, it is how the Septuagint sees it as well as the rabbinic writings, and I give real credence to them because um, early on translation but then we're, we're left with the next question, and whose feet does she touch with this bloody tissue, right? Very graphic. So is the crucifixion. Blood happening to be shed of the firstborn, right? Well, uh, the Passover, right? The blood over the lentils. All of this is going to be in, is foreshadowing something down the road and, and this interesting, it could be that she touched the son's feet and in indicating that he is now purified. Problem with that is he already has blood all over him. <laughs> It'd be very obvious that he's been circumcised, right? Um, to me, that doesn't wash. That she touches Moses' feet is a typical translation or understanding. Um, and kind of, it's done. You made me do it. Here it is. The problem is she's not appeasing Moses' wrath. She's appeasing God's wrath. And I would argue she's laying at God's feet. And, and I give you the, the reasons for this in your notes. It was God who demanded the ritual. He's the one who ordered in Genesis 17 circumcision. If God liked the, the bloody tissue, fine, he should have it. And she was angry that God would want to take her husband's life over this ritual. So fine, here it is. 
And so, uh, and I even mentioned there the Targum, that's a rabbinic writing very early, about 250, 300 AD, excuse me, said, were it not for the blood of the circumcision, my husband would have merited execution. Moses should have stepped up to the plate and led spiritually in the home. He doesn't. And it takes a Midianite woman to perform an act that he should have done, right? You know what's really sad? Is Zipporah and the sons disappear. They go back to Jethro. They don't go to Egypt. In fact, later in Exodus, they come, and I even have the text there in your notes, Exodus 18, but then they appear to leave again. And later, Moses will marry a Cushite. <gasps> he marries a different lady. And, and I know some have tried to interpret Zipporah is a Midianite, and Midianite land belonged to Cushan. No, I don't think so. I think it's a different woman. Let me give you something even more tragic. Turn. They don't go because in Exodus 18, they, they come with Jethro. So they don't, they don't go with him. I think at this point, I don't think they go down to Egypt. Because in Exodus 18, they come with Jethro and they meet him as they're coming out of Egypt. <laughs> and, and what's interesting, I want you to turn to Judges. Judges 18. Judges is one sad commentary on the Israelite people, right? They get in a mess, they get persecuted, they repent, and God restores them, they go back to their sin again, God judges them. It's like this yo-yo that just keeps going. But one of the most sad, tragic events, and, and by the way, Judges appears to get worse and worse and worse as you move along, is a tribe by the name of Dan. I love taking people to Israel to the north side to tell Dan. It's beautiful. It's unlike the rest of Israel in that it's lush, it's green. It's one of the tributaries that leads into the, the, the water flow into the Jordan. It's gorgeous. And you go, this is why the Dan tribe came here. It's remote. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It was also a way to get away from God. You remember, they create their own temple and they bring in a priest Micah's priest, they hire him, and, 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 and this priest does all this, and it's not until the end, it's like an O. Henry tell, because at the very end, the author says, oh, that priest, and, and by the way, he mentioned earlier, the priest is well known, and look what it says in verse 30, the Danites worshiped the carved image, Jonathan, who is their priest, descendant of Jershom, son of Moses. The grandson of the great deliverer is a priest in occultic worship up in Tel Dan. Why? Because I will argue Moses didn't stand up as a leader of the home. Now, I, I realize we have rebellious kids and you can be as godly as possible. So I want to be careful. But Moses' family, I will argue, is, is just in absolute disarray. I think from the time with with Zipporah because he didn't take the lead here. He, his kids go back with Zipporah this way in Exodus 18. They come back, but they seem to go back with Jethro. And then he's marrying a Cushite woman later on. And Miriam, Moses' sister, has a holy hissy over that. I mean, Moses is not a perfect fella, is he? And, and you see this family that I think is just spiraling out of control. And by the time you get to a grandson, you got, you got a Levite priest, and Moses of the tribe of Levi, and this guy is willing to sell his 
right as a priest to the highest bidder and worship a false god. Isn't that sad? It's, yeah. So, question for you, David. So, assuming it's the firstborn son that circumcised, wouldn't it make logical sense that they would stay behind to allow time for him to heal as Moses takes off? I do find it interesting that we don't see him again, like you mentioned, until Jethro shows up. And to contrast that, if in fact Moses had been, let's say he was partially circumcised then as an Egyptian. And now he was fully circumcised to honor God as, as Zipporah would see it, right? One would think he would stay behind not being able to travel well for a period of time just oh, because of the healing. I think Moses was circumcised properly by his family. They had him for three months, Moses' parents. Back in Egypt when he was a child, he still was in three months with his, under, with his parents. So he would have been circumcised properly. I don't think he was circumcised here at this event. And that's true. Uh, that's another reason why if these kids are a little bit older, they're not going with daddy down to Egypt. <clears throat> so if I can ask one more question, Matthew. So um, one of the readings I, I found interesting was that possibly Moses' mother did not serve him for fear that they would realize he was an Israelite child. And so by not circumcising him, as she passes him on to the future Stepmother, it wouldn't be as obvious that he was uh, an Israel. Does that make sense to you? Okay, the, the, Paul said he read that Moses wasn't fully circumcised by his parents because the parents didn't want him to be seen as an Israelite among the Egyptians. The, 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 I have two problems with that. One is I think they planned to hide him until he was fully grown. Secondly, they didn't know that an Egyptian would take him when they put him in that basket in the Nile, I would argue. And third, um, <clears throat> I think there's more ways to tell that it was an Israelite and not an Egyptian baby. So, um, Moses, <laughs> like the rest of us, have feet of clay too, doesn't he? And we think this great saint who God uses mightily, and I guess when I read this text, I see God's grace. Because God still uses Moses. And whether I've read a little too much, you, you may argue with the whole Zipporah, it is intriguing that he, has to, he remarries and you don't really hear Zipporah again and the kids. And the next time you see the kids, it's Jershom's son who's a false priest or a priest of a false god. And, and you just you scratch your head going, wow. The text ends, and you can see this, where Aaron arrives and they go down, and it's, it's almost like, bloop, boom, uh, the elders receive him and down in Egypt, and they all worship. It's all well, and I think that's God's grace. God could have taken out Moses here, and he didn't. Three things I want to leave with you, and you just take with you this today. Uh, as head of the home, we as men have a responsibility to lead spiritually. Even if you're single, you can lead as an example of one who exhibits godly manhood. We are to love our wives as Christ loves the church, which means what? <laughs> Last time I knew, Christ died for the church. There's, there's been more than one occasion where I've had to walk outside and walk around the house a few times and quote Ephesians 5. 
I'm to love my wife as Christ loves the church. I'm to love my wife as Christ loves the church. Right? Tongue is bleeding. Um, come in and say, be the first. You know, the, the only argument you should have in marriage is who's going to serve first. Right? Ephesians 5. And then Ephesians 6. Uh, fathers were not to frustrate our children. And that's when I, who my kids know how to hit every button so quickly, especially. Well, I won't say which one, but yes, they do. Yes, you know. Um, and whether you're, you're married, um, single, whatever the situation, we still have responsibility to lead. Secondly, let me give you another. The Lord takes His commandments seriously. Holiness is, is painted all over this text. God takes his word seriously. In fact, it almost cost Moses everything. The opportunity to lead the Israelites, the opportunity to witness God's hand. And in fact, it almost cost him his life. In Isaiah chapter 40, the word of God does not fade. It stands forever. Isn't that great? <laughs> Watch the public debates. God's word will stand forever. Not theirs, but God's. Right? And then finally... Despite our failures, and let's face it, if we're human, I haven't done so well at times as a husband, as a father, um, if you're single, <clears throat> whatever the case, the Lord forgives, He extends grace, and still chooses to use us. Lamentations 3, His mercies are new every morning. Isn't that great? And, and this whole bizarre scene ends again with Moses and Aaron meeting with the elders in Egypt, and they're worshiping God. There's finally hope for the Israelites, right? And there's even hope for Moses. Father, thank you for your word. Ah, <laughs> at times it's so intriguing. And we, like Peter says of Paul's writing, some of it's really hard to understand, but we're so grateful because there's, there's enough here to last us a lifetime. Uh, of walking in, in humility, depending on you, loving, if we're married, our spouses, if we have children, loving our children, and leading as godly men, Lord, in our lives, and, and clinging to the grace and forgiveness you give us as followers of you. Lord, we love you. Be with these men today. Thank you for the time they've carved out to, to gather around your word and fellowship. In Jesus' name.